This is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest this week, Gail Simmons, is a bona fide, multifaceted culinary expert. Most listeners will know Gail from her recurring role as a judge on the TV show Top Chef, or perhaps from her cookbook, Bringing It Home, favorite recipes from a life of adventurous eating. But the professional eater, as she calls herself, also co-owns a production company called Bumble Pie Productions, sits on the board of several food-related nonprofits, and just finished up a stint as special projects director for food and wine. She's a busy lady. I sat down with Gail in Brooklyn to hear how a perspective-shifting, palate-refining childhood trip to South Africa, the country where her father was born, impacted her life and her career. Gail Simmons, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Thank you so much for having me. I know it was hard when you were preparing for this interview to kind of narrow it down to just one trip out of the lifetime of amazing trips that you've been on. (laughs) But you landed on a story that's very much connected to family and migration. So before we jump into that, I'd love to hear a bit about your background and kind of the mingling of cultures that you were exposed to as a child. Sure. It's always hard where to begin, you know, how far (laughs) back do you want me to go? I was born in Toronto, Canada. I'm Canadian, proudly Canadian, although I've lived in New York for over 20 years now. I like to say I am not American, but I'm a New Yorker. I grew up in the center of the city, right downtown, and my mother was from Montreal. She moved to Toronto in the 60s. She went to college. She was originally from Montreal, went to college in Montreal, and then did some graduate work in Europe and settled in Toronto where she met my father. My father is South African. He was born and raised in South Africa in a very small town in the center of the center of the country called Bloemfontein. Most people outside of South Africa will never and have never heard of Bloemfontein. But if you're from South Africa, you definitely have. He left Bloemfontein to go to college. He went to University of Cape Town. And then when he kind of could save up enough money in his first job after college, he bought a one-way boat ticket out of there. He went to London where he did an MBA. And then he was an engineer, a chemical engineer. And the company that he was working for in London for a few years transferred him to Toronto to their, you know, corporate offices in Canada. He had no real knowledge of or reason to go to Canada otherwise, but they moved him there. He moved there also in the 60s. And that's where he met my mother. His entire family remained in South Africa. And much later in South African history, during the during apartheid in the 80s and 90s, there was actually a huge migration of South African emigrants to Toronto. There's actually a very large South African population, white South African population in Toronto, but they all moved to the suburbs. My father was far ahead of them. And so we grew up with some South African friends, uh, but no family and no one that he knew from South Africa. Really? Well, that's not true. Not no one, but few people where we were living. Wow. And your mother was a food writer and cooking school instructor. That's true. Yes. Uh, which must have influenced you hugely. How did she teach you about culinary appreciation when you were growing up? 
I mean, it's funny. It's one of those things that you don't want to acknowledge or can't really see when you're growing up in it. And even when I started my career, the early years when I decided that I wanted to focus on the world of food and food writing, food media, when I decided I wanted to be in food media, the word media meant one thing. It meant print publishing. I'm old. So (laughs) it's changed enormously. And there are so many possibilities for jobs now that were not even available to me 20 years ago when I first graduated college and started working in the food business. You were either in restaurants or you were writing for print media, pretty much. And my fa- my mother did that before me. She wrote a column for the biggest newspaper in Canada about food, not restaurant reviews, about ingredients and cooking and trends. And then she ran a little cooking school out of our home. And she was a really amazing cook at a time in the 80s when most moms were cooking out of a microwave. And, you know, that was when they were all getting into the workforce and and no one had time to cook or knew how. And it was sort of a forgotten skill because people could make food so much more convenient. And that was the, really the, the trend. But my mom never went that way. She always cooked from scratch. She always cooked very creatively with whole great ingredients. You know, Toronto is an amazing city with incredible markets and, and immigrant communities and, and neighborhoods to explore. And so she always took us along on her grocery shopping, whether it was to Little India or to Chinatown. She always cooked a meal for all of us. We were spoiled that way. In fact, to the point where most of my friends growing up, parents didn't want to invite me over for lunch because they thought that all I wanted was fancy food, quote unquote. (laughs) My mother never cooked fancy food. She just cooked and she cooked really simple, beautiful food with lots of fresh vegetables and fruit and nothing from a box, really. She wasn't like a a merry homemaker. She, She wasn't precious about it in any way. But because she had this reputation as such a great cook, when all I wanted was hot dogs and macaroni and cheese, my friend's parents thought I wanted something else. So unfortunately, that perpetuated into adulthood. So my mother was incredibly influential. And I remember when I announced that I wanted to work in the food world when I graduated college and all of her friends would say to me, oh, you're just like your mom. Your mom must be so proud. That's so wonderful. A, that was the worst thing you can say to someone at the age of 22. I mean, who wants to hear that they're becoming their mother? That's like the most inevitable, horrifying fate. And two, my mom, not that she wasn't proud of me, but that's not what she wanted for me at all. To her, it was a job she did because she loved to cook and it was a great hobby, but it was a way for her to stay home with her children when we were growing up and to work from home. She wanted me to be a lawyer. And so it actually took some back and forth between us and some working out of our own baggage to get to a place where she was actually happy with me working in the food world. I'm still questioning if she's happy. She, she's proud, of course. <laughs> she is really proud. I'm not saying that um, truthfully. She's very proud of what I do. She really is. But, you know, there's, I think, 2% of her that wishes that I went to law school. That's so interesting. I'm fascinated by the factors that lead to our love of certain foods and certain cuisines. And I was doing a deep dive during my research into how children develop their taste preferences. Yes. And it turns out that while we're in the womb, the flavors that our mother is consuming, the things that are in her diet, actually reach our teeny tiny taste buds (laughs) um, through the amniotic fluid. So she's really influencing and shaping our palates from the get-go. I'm curious to know, do you know what cravings your mother had while she was pregnant with you? I do. And what's funny is I'm sure she ate a lot of things. And I'm sure that has a lot to do, not just with what she ate while she was pregnant with me, but what 
she then gave us as children, which was a very broad diet that she exposed to us for sure, exposed us to. And so that must account in a lot of ways for my excitement and enthusiasm for all foods. But most interestingly, the one story she has told me many, many times is that when the only real pregnancy craving she remembers was waking up in the middle of the night on a few occasions while she was pregnant and forcing my father to go out and buy her chocolate eclairs. Oh, delicious. Which I'm all for. <laughs> I mean, I definitely like chocolate eclairs, if that's any indication. I definitely have a sweet tooth and chocolate, dark chocolate is my number one. But my father is a bit of a chocoholic too, so it could have been the influence of both of them. But it certainly is in there. Um, I think about this a lot because I have two children and I, you know, I had two very healthy pregnancies and I loved eating when I was pregnant. Everything tasted so good and I had such a huge appetite and it was, you know, I could eat anything I wanted all the time and I did, but not in excess. I, I wanted everything. I wanted fruit and I wanted spicy food and I wanted you know, a lot of ethnic food, really pungent, strong flavors. That's what I craved. That's interesting. With my first pregnancy, especially lots of spicy food. My second, my second pregnancy, I remember craving more than anything, just candy, like gummy bears and sour licorice and all the junky candy, candy stuff. And my son, who's only 17 months now, has never tasted any of that. So it remains to be seen if I <laughs> will have been leading him down a very dark path. <laughs> My mother craved pickles. Yes. I mean, that's a classic, right? And I definitely have a a, a craving for myself. I love anything vinegary, Me anything too. sour, tart. Absolutely. I, love I do too. And actually my family jokes that we're the pickle family because <laughs> my daughter, who's almost six, is crazy about pickles and olives. Her two favorite foods are pickles and olives. And I was saying how when I was pregnant, I was eating a lot of spicy food and definitely pickles. But we also... My husband and I are both huge pickle fans in general. My father is a pickle maker. I mean, not by trade. He's obviously a chemical engineer, as I said, but my father always made pickles growing up. And so pickles, we gave pickles away at our wedding as our wedding favor, actually. And so pickles feature very prominently in our lives. And we had a moment when, what if our daughter doesn't like pickles? Like, what are we going to do as a family if she doesn't like pickles? Thank goodness she likes pickles. So you guys would get along very well. Uh, olives is an interesting one. Yeah. Have you ever tried or heard of the olive challenge? No. Bring so it. Um, people who don't like olives, if you force them, <laughs> I've tried this on my friends, if you force them to eat 11 olives in a row, then they acquire the taste and from then on they love olives. That's amazing. It's a real thing. Is that true? I mean, it's worked for me when I forced my friends to do it. But how do you get someone who's like, I'll have to eat 11 olives? That's a lot of olives. Well, I feel like it's one of those things that most of the people want to acquire the taste. Like, it's, yeah. it's a you nice... You have to exactly have to want it. Yeah. Yeah. So if they want to be into olives, then you can persuade them. Okay. I'm going to try that because olives, I'm very fascinated by people's food, likes, dislikes, associations, mm -hmm. aversions. I find it fascinating how the strength by which people are so adamant about what they like and dislike. and Olives is, most of those things are often textural, but olives is definitely a big one. Lots of people feel very strongly one way or the other about olives. It's not a food people are sort of mildly indifferent about. Mm -hmm. And my daughter is a crazy olive person. She puts them on all her fingers and runs around the house <laughs> in the grocery store and she can eat an entire pint if we give them to her. Uh, we put olives in her omelets. We put olives on her pizza. Wow. She loves olives. But I'm going to definitely see if that works. That's a good one. It's a good one. So your father's side of the family were living in South Africa during your childhood. Yes. And at age six, you make this day-long journey from Toronto to visit them for the first time. Correct. Even more than day-long journey, because at the time, there were no direct flights from oh. Toronto to South Africa. 
it was a difficult trip. It was a long trip. And there were three children in my family. I have two older brothers. So all five of us made the trip together, which looking back, thinking about my parents dealing with over 24 hours of travel, we had to fly to New York and then New York to Johannesburg. But you, don't, you can't even fly direct. You couldn't at the time fly direct New York to Johannesburg. You had to stop and refuel on an island off the coast of North Africa called Ile del Sol, where we just would sit in the airport for four hours or something. It felt like that long anyway, while the airplane refueled. And then we all got back on the airplane and made the rest of the trip. So it was my goodness agony. I can only <laughs> imagine for my parents dealing with their children on that flight. Was that the first kind of really long haul flight you'd taken as a family? Oh, yes. I mean, I was six. My my brother had been to South Africa with my father when he was about my age, when he had been six. He's six years older than me. And so they had made the trip before. And my father had gone back several times. My mother and father had gone back several times. And it was the first time all five of us had gone together. And did you have any expectations about what South Africa is going to be like before you arrived? You know, it's hard to remember because mm -hmm. I was six, but certainly... I knew a bit about it because my grandparents had come to visit me before. I'd never met any of my cousins at this point. My father had two brothers and each of them had children the same age as us. And I knew I was going to meet my cousins who were going to be my age, which was very exciting because I don't have any other cousins my age. On my mother's side, I have lots of cousins, but my mom is the youngest by many years in her family and her two siblings had children well before her. So as much as I had cousins in Canada and in the States that I'd met and spent time with, they were all much, much older than me. So I do remember this feeling of finally going to be able to meet blood relatives, cousins that were exactly my age to play with and that we would be bonded through that. That's exciting. This is also, though, during the era of apartheid. Yes. Did your parents try to broach the topic or prepare you in any way before your departure? They must have. I mean, I can't remember the pre. I only remember what I learned there and remember the feelings there. And I made several trips over the years afterwards. So it's a little hard to differentiate my feelings about apartheid and about the po political climate when I was six versus the next trip when I was 13 or 12, 12. And then again, we made another trip when I was 16. And then I went again, you know, several times after that as well. So it's hard to remember that, you know, those three trips particularly were really in the middle of apartheid and then the turn of apartheid and the election of Nelson Mandela. And so I remember a few things. I remember being in a very gated community. My cousins and grandparents lived in very gated, protected communities. And not just gated community like you can go to Florida and live in a gated community. They were all manned with armed guards and the armed guards didn't just carry handguns. They carried big guns. I remember that. And it's all privatized security. So, you know, if your alarm goes off in the night, there's like three huge men with giant machine guns at your door in minutes. So I remember that was a striking mm -hmm. sort of off putting issue. I remember that, you know, we wouldn't go out at night a lot at the time. You know, there was fear, there was danger, and there was a lot of violence and crime in the country. still is in a lot of ways, although it's certainly changed over the years. But I do remember this feeling of having to be very protected or that, that my family there wanted to protect us. And only later I came to realize a lot of that had to do with, quite simply, the issues of black and white. And... I also remember 
uh, bathroom segregation and a sign on every restaurant and store that we would go into saying, you know, how they reserve the right to not allow people of color in to the into the places. I also remember that all my family had black people working for them, a gardener and a, a maid. And I don't use that term because that's a term I would use. That's the term they used, the maid. There was a maid who wore a uniform and who was part of their family often for many, many, many years and, you know, worked for them in the closest capacity. And every family, it wasn't because my family was super wealthy at all. Remember that I did not grow up in America. I was never taught American history growing up. I still am foggy on the details of a lot of American history. So civil rights and slavery, I'm not saying that South Africa was a situation of slavery, but this segregation and and slaves and the Civil War and all of American history that gave kind of context to the struggle between um, black and white in this country, even years before, was not known to me. Canada never had segregation and never had these issues in the forefront. So coming from Canada to see these things for the very first time and understand them was a very big deal. Did you notice it changing as you kept returning to the country, you know, when you were 12, when you were a teenager? I certainly remember it changing because apartheid ended and Mandela was elected over the years and that changed the climate in many ways, um, certainly for the better at moments, but there has always been a lot of violence and crime in South Africa and it got worse in a lot of ways too. Um, but I do remember the sentiment uh, about Nelson Mandela in the country and how important that was to the to the country, to everyone in the country, really. Although I also have memories of being with my cousins when I was probably 13 or 16 and talking to them about the relationship between black and white in the country and realizing that cousins who were my age had very different views from me. And we would argue and argue about those views because in Canada, I went to a school that was very diverse. I lived in the center of a big city and I have friends that were of every color, race, creed. It wasn't something we, we were not taught any of this, right? It was something that was to me so foreign, so wrong, so, you know, at the core of who I am as a Canadian and as a, as a very liberal progressive person, so fundamentally incorrect. But my cousins who had been raised differently, raised in a totally different climate with totally different learnings from the country they lived in and the history of that country had totally different views. And it wasn't that their views were, were wrong. It took me a long time to realize that those views were a result of how they were raised. It, there, was, there were very few opportunities for them to think differently. And so it became sort of an agree to disagree situation, but that took a lot of, a lot for me to get over that these are people who are my blood relatives, who I loved and who were ultimately awesome, smart, cool, amazing people. But there was this one fundamental difference between us that was very hard to swallow. Fast forward, they now all live in Australia. They all immigrated when apartheid ended for many reasons, and they all think very differently now, and they've now been able to live in a very different world. But it still remains that this was the world they grew up in, and it was so fundamentally different than mine. 
it's an interesting thing seeing the places where our parents grew up or, you know, the countries where our ancestors came from. I think we can sometimes experience these moments of familiarity that just kind of join the dots of our past. Mm-hmm. Did you recognize any aspects of the culture or the food while you were there? Absolutely. My family, at its roots, if you go back much farther than South Africa, was Lithuanian. They immigrated from Lithuania to South Africa after the First World, maybe actually even some of them before the First World War. My grandmother was born in South Africa. My grandfather was born in England. His parents were from Lithuania. So ultimately they were Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews that had settled in South Africa. There was a very large, almost disproportionately large Ashkenazi Jewish population in South Africa many of whom came for the diamond mining industry um, at the turn of the century. So there was that through line to my culture. And my mother's family's from Russia and Poland. My grandparents moved to Canada from Eastern Europe after the First World War independently and met in Canada, had my mother. So there was this Eastern European Jewish ancestry that my parents shared and that I definitely saw in South Africa too, which was very comforting. Interestingly, my cousins in South Africa were generally more observant in their religious traditions than we were, than we are, than we were raised. We were raised as quite traditional, in a, in a quite traditional Jewish family, but very progressive, very modern. We didn't keep kosher. The, the temple, the synagogue that we went to on Jewish holidays and for you know, Sunday school had the women and men together. You know, it was it was a very modern sort of conservative upbringing in Canada where I was raised. My South African family was raised in a much more observant manner in terms of Judaism. Most of them kept kosher. They went to a synagogue where the men and the women sat separately. They weren't orthodox by any means. They weren't devoutly religious, but they just mostly because The one thing I noticed about South Africa is that because of the political climate and the situation there, people, you really stuck with your community. It was almost like there's a term in Eastern Europe where all the Jews were raised in the shtetls. Do you know that word? It's a Yiddish word for the little Jewish enclaves, the communities where they all would live together, protected and and could, you know, raise their children and be safe together. And it's almost as if in South Africa, they made their own shtetl. It was a very close knit community and it was kept alive by observing in a more rigorous way for perhaps. We had much more freedom growing up and much more exposure to other cultures, other religions. So we were a little more assimilated. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So in terms of food, we were eating a lot more food from Eastern Europe. Well, you than- know, the, the backbone of my family's kind of food history was still Eastern European. Mm-hmm. So my mother wasn't cooking Eastern European food all the time, but at holidays, you know, on Friday nights when we would have Shabbat dinner, for example, and then on holidays, Hanukkah, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, the new year, we would eat all this very traditional stuff that in America and North America has come to be known as like classic Jewish deli food. But, and we would see it in, in South Africa too. So we would eat brisket and lutkas and matzo ball soup. And, you know, stuffed cabbage rolls and, you know, special coconut macaroons and all those things that my family in and pickles <laughs> and things that my family in South Africa also ate as well. Awesome. Um, and what memories stand out in your mind from that trip? Was there 
like a specific experience you can recall that sparked a cultural or culinary curiosity in you? I remember a lot of food from that trip and food that has remained with me from South Africa forever. Um, in terms of just one giant memory that really altered me that wasn't necessarily food related, but that I think changed me in general from that first trip and then from several trips going forward, every time I go back to South Africa was going on safari, was going to a, a park, an animal, you know, a safari park and living for five, six days. I think on that first trip, we went for probably five days with my family to um, the northern part of the Transvaal, which is sort of the north eastern corner of South Africa where the biggest national, the biggest safari park in the world exists. It's bigger than the country of Israel in general. It's called the Kruger National Park. And anyone who knows anything about South Africa knows Kruger because it's, it's not, you know, there are pockets of it where you can go to very luxurious camps, but you can also just drive in your car, pay a fee to enter the park, and you can stay in more general camps. It's massive. I mean, it's the size of a country. I mean, it's a humongous piece of land, and it is 100% ruled by the natural animal kingdom. So there are rules you need to abide by to be safe. And, you know, we spent five days there seeing, seeing African wildlife, you know, in, at its, at its best. I remember seeing lions and giraffe and elephants and impala and kudu and wildebeests and all birds of all kinds, crocodiles and hippopotamus and rhinoceros. Uh, leopards. I mean, all of these animals living in the wild, killing and eating and delivering babies. And it was that to me was by far the most eye-opening experience. And one that I think really made me understand Africa a little bit better and realize where I was and how far it was from home. It wasn't like going to a zoo. We were the ones in the cages, right. so to speak. <laughs> That's an experience I would love to have. It sounds incredible. The, the food of Africa, I remember very clearly too, some things that were familiar, like you know the, the Eastern European food perhaps, that my family would eat at home. But the thing I remember most about Africa and that trip for sure, two things. One, the fruit. The fruit was very different than where I was from. You know, where I was from, we ate apples and oranges and maybe peaches in the summer and plums and seasonal pears. Mm -hmm. But in Africa, we ate guava and passion fruit and mangoes and, you know, all of this fruit that I had never tasted before. And they were good. <laughs> they, I mean, you could go on the side of the road and stop and buy mango and passion fruit and guavas on the side of the road. And I remember just being completely enamored by how delicious they were. And you could also buy dried fruit. Now you can go into like every Trader Joe's on every corner in America and get bags of dried mango. But for probably 25 years, my family was smuggling giant bags of fresh sun-dried mango back from South Africa and other fruit leathers because they had this amazing tradition of drying fruit and preserving fruit. And because the season was much longer, the growing season, you could get amazing fruit. And it was all preserved and dried into fruit leathers. And we would hoard it and bring it home and save it up all year long until we could go back and get more. So that was a very vivid memory. And the other was chocolate. 
The chocolate in South Africa, I remember loving. This is my childhood memories, of course. So there's candy. Chocolate, I remember loving because the chocolate there was much more British than American. And so it was better. I don't know how I'll say it. it wasn't a candy bar. It was chocolate bars. They were real chocolate. Listen, I hate you. Yeah, I know you do. I can hear that you do. And so really, and then there was all these chocolate bars that they just didn't have in America. Milo bars made out of Milo, which is if you aren't from the British colonies, you might not know that Milo is sort of a hot drink that my father always made for us growing up a malted hot beverage. And there was a Milo bar that you could get in South Africa that was made with little bits of Milo, like kind of powdered malted candy in it that was amazing. And there was a, a chocolate bar called Top Deck, which was milk chocolate with a white chocolate layer. And we would also just live for getting these treats. The third really amazing memory of South African food that I then took with me for the rest of my life and I'm still pretty obsessed with is biltong. Uh, biltong is a dried preserved meat, I guess the equivalent of beef jerky in America, but to say it's beef jerky is an insult. There's some beef jerky that's good these days. I live in Brooklyn. There's a lot of artisanal <laughs> beef jerky, but biltong is far more sophisticated in my mind than beef jerky, mostly because it's not made with sugar. Most beef jerky in this country, same idea. It was used as a preserving method for meat to dry and salt and cure meat so that it would last longer and became this chewy, delicious protein-packed snack that we all now love. But in America, beef jerky generally is made with a sugar. Part of the cure, it's salt and sugar, so there's a sweetness there. And then you can get all kinds of flavors like maple teriyaki and crazy things like that. Bulldog, far simpler. Bultong was just salted, dried meat and often salted and dried in, in the full tenderloin, like or in the full loin, Whoa. giant pieces. So you could buy it in giant pieces or you can buy it sliced or you could buy it shredded or you could buy it in things called um, boors, I think they called them, which were like kind of sticks, like sausage sticks, dried, you know, sticks. Bultong is just salted and chewy and savory and delicious. And they don't just do beef. They do wild game as well, because there's so much wild game in the country. So we would eat kudu bultong or ostrich bultong. There's a very famous town in South Africa, which was, was the capital of the ostrich raising world. And there was a time when ostrich feathers in the kind of 18th century were worth more than their weight in gold. So there were thousands of ostrich farms. And so there's tons of ostrich meat in the country. Delicious, by the way, kind of halfway between beef and chicken, much more tender than beef, but has much more flavor than chicken. So we grew up eating all of this bultong too, going to South Africa. And that was the first time that I remember tasting it. You also have this amazing story about the first time you tasted wine. Oh, yes. Wow. You've done your research. That is also true. That took place on that trip. I have pictures of that moment. <laughs> Part of that trip, we went to the Kruger Park. We went to Johannesburg to see my family. We went to Cape Town and my parents who, you know, were great eaters and loved wine and were, you know, really showing us the world through the lens of food always. And our travel around the world with this trip really being the first was always through that lens and always about exposing us to great food. And so they wanted to go to wine country. South Africa has a very famous wine country. Stellenbosch is sort of the center of wine country just outside of Cape Town, about an hour out of Cape Town. Beautiful, long history of making wine in that country. And so we went out to wine country for a few days and we were small. I was six not even six. I actually, it was December before I turned six. So I was the exact age my daughter is right now. 
And then my older brother, if I was five and a half, was 11. And my other brother was almost 13 or 12. So we were not of drinking age, but my parents certainly were. So we went out to wine country, we toured around wine country, and we would stop at all these vineyards and go in to do wine tasting. And my parents would explain to us, just stick your tongue in the little glass and have a tiny taste. It's okay. You can have just a tiny taste of wine. And of course, we didn't like the taste, but my brothers thought it was funny to, instead of just stick their tongue in and have a taste, to swig back all of the tasting portions of the wine. So they told us to do, they, they told me, my brothers, to do the same. And of course, I followed whatever my older brothers did. So I started just swigging back this wine. And the story goes that I did it all day long, or I did it all morning long <laughs> at the age of six and got drunk. And spent the next two hours just running in circles, being a total nuisance, repeating everything that my parents would say. You know, my, my mom would say, stop running. And I'd say, stop running. My father would say, settle down. And I'd be like, settle down. You know, I was copying <laughs> them and being completely annoying. And then I passed out in the backseat of the car for like six hours, just passed out drunk. So that was the first of many evenings passed out drunk. No, that's not true. <laughs> uh, I'm a very responsible drinker now, but that was the first time I tasted wine. Do you still like South African wine? <laughs> I do. And South African wine, even since then, has come a long way. I mean, Pinotage is sort of like the famous grape of South Africa. It's actually not my favorite grape, but there is some great Pinotage, certainly. And now there's just such amazing, brilliant winemaking going on in the country. And I've been able to go back at drinking age, at, at the right age <laughs> enjoy to drink legally. wine and enjoy it legally. Correct. <laughs> Although the drinking age is much younger there. Oh, it's yeah. It's probably 18, oh, yeah. like most of the world. Right. It's just America <laughs> that has this strange issue that I've never understood as a Canadian. Agreed. So the title of the podcast is obviously The Trip That Changed Me. In what way do you think that this one did change you? It's so far reaching. When I think back to the, this first trip to South Africa and how it changed me, I would say in every way, it exposed me to the world outside of my home. It showed me how big and expansive the world was, that humans were not the only important things in this world, and that pets were not the only animals, that you can love people and disagree with them or not understand where they're from. Um, it taught me that traveling is sort of the beginning of my education and that I can learn so much from leaving the confines of what is comfortable and seeing new things. It also introduced me to my family uh, that I don't get to see very often, even now, but it formed those bonds with them and we will forever be family and forever in touch and follow each other and cheer for each other and love each other, even if we're 10,000 miles away. So I think all of those lessons went into what informed me moving forward. It certainly exposed me to food and flavors that I would never otherwise know. And those flavors became such an integral part of my life, even years later, when I wrote my cookbook, uh, which came out in 2017, there is at least three recipes in there from South Africa. And in the original table of contents, there were probably six, but we had to balance it out and take some of them out. So, you know, these are flavors and memories that you realize are so vital. Sense memory, flavor memory is so important, I think. And it shapes who you are in so many ways. The first memories of tasting something delicious or terrible form your thoughts about that ingredient or that dish forever. And I will always associate those flavors with that time. So. I think it set me on the course that really set me up for what I ended up doing, unbeknownst to me at the time, but for my living, for my life. And it also 
allowed me to believe really deeply in the power of travel to help people and to widen their horizons and, um, and expose them to so much more than what they think they already know. Gail, that was beautifully articulated. Ah, thanks, I rambled. <laughs> that was a bit of a ramble, but no, you know what perfect. I mean. <laughs> so you obviously have traveled a lot for work. Yes. What was the last big trip you went on? I got back 48 hours ago from oh, really? five weeks in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Yeah. Shooting shooting. Top Chef? Yeah, we were shooting Top Chef there. Awesome. Is that the first time you shot it in Los Angeles? No, we've shot several times and we weren't, we weren't shooting in Los Angeles to be in Los Angeles per se. We're sort of doing some different things with the season this year, but we have shot in Los Angeles twice before for the season. We shot season two there and we shot season 13 there, partially there. But then we shot Top Chef Just Desserts, Top Chef Masters, and Top Chef Duels all in Los Angeles. So I've spent a lot of time there. I wouldn't say it's an exotic destination, but it is across the country in a city I know well, and I spend a lot of time in for work, for sure. But I, yes, there have been better work trips, certainly. <laughs> I'm curious to know if you have like a go-to comfort food when you're on the road or whether you always eat in very, you know, refined places. Definitely don't eat only in refined places. That's not how I want to eat ever these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to eat in the best places. And by best, I don't mean fanciest. I mean most delicious. So actually, apropos of Los Angeles, when I'm in Los Angeles, I don't want to eat at the fancy restaurants at all. I want to eat at the incredible Thai and Korean and Persian and like ethnic Chinese Szechuan restaurants of Los Angeles, because I think those are the most exciting because Los Angeles has such an incredible breadth of ethnic pockets that make some of the best food in the country. So that's what I want to eat when I'm there. That's basically what I want to eat when I'm everywhere. I want to find out what the greatest places are that tell me the best stories of the city that I'm in. You know, what are the top five restaurants that really will tell me what it's like to live in this place, whether it's New Orleans or Singapore. And how do you find these restaurants? Obviously, most of us would hop online, you know, look for some lists. Somewhere. I do the same. same I mean, thing. I start online looking for lists, typing in, you know, all the key words, best restaurants in, um, most underrated or most exciting restaurants in, newest, best, whatever. But then I, I have um, a lot of other research that I do. I, I'm lucky that a lot of my friends in, in my same line of business are also incredible travelers. And can usually, if not tell me themselves from their own lists of experiences, can put me in touch with friends they know. You know, when um, when I went to Singapore, for example, for Top Chef's season seven finale, that was the first time I'd ever gone to Singapore. And so I started off by speaking to several friends who I knew had spent time there, friends who were from there. Uh, and they put me in touch with people who put me in touch with people who ultimately put me in touch with three incredible chefs in Singapore who took me each individually out on separate days to take me on food tours of Singapore and make sure I was eating in the right places from the hawker stalls to the Michelin starred restaurants and everything in between. That is exactly the response I wanted. Good. You're like well, tapped into it. this network keep, of culinary experts. I, I am and I'm, I'm <laughs> grateful for it. I've, I, it's a lot of work in the best way. I mean, that's sort of what I'm most excited about in terms of what I get to do with my job. And after years and years of doing it, I do have, you know, lists on my phone of every major city in the world. and where to eat there and what to do when I'm there or who to talk to to figure out these things if I can't figure them out myself. You obviously have children of your own now, Dahlia and Cole. Yes. Do you travel with them a lot the way your parents traveled with you? 
we're trying. And yes, we do. Dahlia, because she's almost six, has traveled so much. I mean, sometimes it's mind blowing to think about when she was three months old, the day she turned three months old, we got her on a plane. We moved to LA because I was shooting there for three weeks. Then we went to Boston for four weeks to shoot. Then we came back and in her first year of life, she went to Aspen. She went to Montreal and Toronto. She, you know, we, we, we just threw her on every plane we could. And we were really committed to doing that as long as we could. And as long as we still can, we still will. She's been to Spain. She's been to London. She's been to various islands, uh, you know, in the Caribbean many times. Um, and across the country, I take her as much as I can when I'm working. I sort of have an unwritten rule that I try not to be away from my kids for more than a week at a time. And so when I'm, and most of the time I don't be away from them that long. Most of the time when I travel, it's three days here, three days there. But there are a few times a year when I do need to be away for longer periods. And so they come with me sort of no matter what. I believe that missing a week of school is worth it at this stage in their lives. It'll get more difficult as they get older, of course. And while they can, I think it's a great education. So they were out in LA with me for several weeks when I was there. And um, they come with me wherever I can take them when I can, when it makes sense. And when I have the time to spend with them, obviously, when I'm going to places where I'm literally touching down and working nonstop. There's no point in doing that, because that just becomes difficult for everyone. But I really do want to travel with them everywhere. You know, Cole is only 17 months old. So he's in that period that is the worst to travel in. I believe that until they're a year old, travel like hell, because between three months when their immune systems are okay and a year, it is so easy to travel with babies. They don't walk. They don't yell at you. They can't move on a plane and you can just keep them in that car seat and tote them around and they don't really have to be on a schedule so they can go out to a restaurant with you at night and you can carry them in a little baby Bjorn and trek all over the place literally do it, do it, do it as hard as it may sound. Then from about a year until three is sort of the worst for traveling with children. That's not to say I'm not going to do it because I will, but let's say a year to two and a half years because they can't sit still. They want to eat everything off the floor. They're walking and running and flailing, but they don't know where they're going. They don't know danger. They don't, um, they don't communicate as well as certainly in that, you know, when they're about a year to two years, so they can't, they get frustrated easily and they are just sort of like a walking disaster and being on a plane, especially a long plane ride gets really complicated. My son is a full wiggler and he's a big boy. He's like a truck. So, you know, we're just spend hours and hours walking up and down the aisles, bothering everybody and making a mess. So, you know, maybe we'll wait a little bit for the really big trips for another, let's say year. And then it's just off to the races, schlepping them around wherever I can. Two years old is the age when a lot of kids go through their picky eater phase. Yes, for sure. Well, it's when they really learn to assert themselves and that they can say no. And my daughter certainly went through that phase when she was two, where she all of a sudden, after eating everything that we would give her, started saying no and started just refusing. But then she kind of came back to it. So we'll see what Cole does. And it is true. They, they definitely get a sense of independence that you are not used to as a parent and have to readjust. And Dahlia is now almost the same age that you were when you first went to South Africa. Do you have any epic trips planned for her or where would you like to take her ideally? Oh, we want to take her everywhere. We certainly want to take her to South Africa and to Australia to meet my whole family that was in South Africa and is now in Sydney because I want her to meet all her cousins and, you know, my cousins that were my age all also have now had children. So they have cousins for her to meet that are her age. 
and I want them all to know each other. And I want her to see the things I saw in South Africa. But because I was the youngest when I went, it was a little easier for my parents with me at that age. I could probably take her now. It would be an exhausting trip, but we could do it. it the issue is taking coal. So we'll get there. We just might have to wait a few years. Otherwise, I mean, I want to take her everywhere. We took her to Spain when I was pregnant with Cole as our sort of last family of three adventure. And that was difficult. She was four, just turning four. And it was a challenging trip too, but she loved it and learned a lot about it. And, and that was really great. I want to take her to Israel. I want to take her to, I don't know. I want to take her to the East coast of Canada because it's a place that's on my list. Having lived in Canada, I never really spent time out there. I want to Go all the places I want to go. I want to take her. I want to take her to Japan. We talk a lot about Japan in my house right now because uh, my husband and I were in Japan earlier this year, and her grandmother, my mother-in-law, was in Japan for a long time, a few months before that. So she has a lot of touch points about Japan right now. Mostly candy that we brought back and clothing and Hello Kitty, but she kind of understands about Japan, and so I really want to take her there because I just want an excuse to go back. It'll be interesting to see what that trip ends up being for her. Yes. You, know. you know, I have friends that take their children to Japan often. They're little children. They're actually a family from Hong Kong. But once a year, they go to Tokyo and they love it and they just bring their kids along. And I saw when I was there that it's actually a really kid-friendly country to travel in. It's a very sophisticated country. There's a lot of systems that are really well-designed and in place for children. And so I think just getting through the plane ride is one thing. But when we're there, Japan is like a wonderland for adults and kids alike. Gail, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story with us. That was fun. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I have a couple of quick fire questions for you. Great. The first one is, what is one thing that you believe every person should experience in their lifetime? Oh, there's so many things, but I would say either seeing wild animals in the place where they belong or jumping out of an airplane, preferably with a parachute on your back. Have you done a skydive? I have. When and it was thrilling. It? I did it in Australia when I was 19, when I went to visit my family. And I don't think I'd have the courage to do it again uh, now that I'm older and more afraid of things. But it was one of the most thrilling eight minutes or 11 minutes of my life. I did the same. I was actually 19, but in New Zealand. Oh. I went to New Zealand right after and jumped <laughs> off of bridges because that's yes. what you do when you go to New Zealand. That's what New Zealand's about. It really is. And I jumped off. I bungee jumped several times when I was there in Queenstown, but I don't want to bungee jump again because bungee jumping versus skydiving, like bungee jumping to me becomes just like mm -hmm. a quick thrill. Right. And it was great, but it's so fast. It's like two seconds and you're literally facing down a river with rocks in it. Mm -hmm. Skydiving, you get to enjoy and you're at, you know, 10,000 feet. And there's a moment of free falling, which is incredible to feel and petrifying. But it doesn't then, feel the same as the fall from a bridge. When you do this, no, the bungee yes. jump, you feel that your stomach flip flops and it's, exactly. it's scary. But when you're skydiving, you just see the world spread out below you and exactly. you're just kind of almost floating. That's how it feels. You are. And then when you pull your parachute, you have time to look at the world and float gently down to it. And that is, to me, the most serene moment I'd ever experienced. I agree with you, though. I don't know if I would have the guts to do it now. In my yeah, 30s. me neither. Me neither. That's what I'm saying. Um, my second question is, as someone who travels a lot for both work and for pleasure, what is the one thing you never, ever travel without? A scarf, because I always get like cold on planes, but then I don't want all the layers to carry around. A scarf is like the perfect size to like warm me up a bit, but not overwhelm me. A good scarf, big scarf. 
dark chocolate always because you never know in emergencies when you're going to need something to eat or you just get that craving. My dad taught me that. <laughs> uh, those are two things I probably never travel with. And then, you know, all the things like that you want an adapter and a the essentials. The essentials. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Gail hopes to return to South Africa with her father, who is now 82 and resides in Toronto. She'll have to find some time in her packed schedule first, though. Season 17 of Top Chef is about to wrap and will air sometime in 2020. In the meantime, follow at Gail Simmons Eats on Instagram for culinary adventures and ludicrously delicious recipes. One more thing before you go about your day. Full-Time Travel recently added an amazing travel advisor to our team, and I want to take a minute here to shout her out because booking through an advisor is such a travel hack, it's crazy more people don't know about it. Her name is Chelsea Martin. She's an affiliate of Embark and Virtuoso, and she's also a travel influencer in her own right. You can find her on Instagram at Passport to Friday. Chelsea has amazing relationships with hotels, tour operators, and locals all over the world. And not only will she sort the logistics and take all the stressful planning off your hands, she also scores insane perks at no extra cost to you. Think room upgrades, free cocktails, spa discounts, and late checkouts to name just a few. So whether you want to book an extravagant honeymoon or just want to secure the best hotel for your budget, Chelsea has you covered. Just drop her an email at chelsea at fttadvisor.com. That's chelsea at fttadvisor.com and start planning your dream trip with VIP perks today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. I'll be back in two weeks' time to share more inspiring travel stories. And in the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going. 